0: It's good to see you all today. If you are new, my name is Solmany Amigayi. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Resurrection. I am always humbled and excited to read from God's Word, to study it and see what it says to us. This season of Epiphany, we're looking at um, our God incarnate, Jesus Christ, and how He interacts with the various people that He meets in his journey towards the cross and towards giving us life. Lastly, we talked about what God incarnate does when he meets the sick and the dying. He heals them, he restores them to fellowship, and then he gives them an opportunity to serve him. Today, we're gonna look at Matthew chapter nine, verse nine to 13, and we're gonna talk about what God does when he encounters scoundrels. I thought about changing the title God incarnate among the scoundrels, but it kind of fits. (laughs) Um, I'm using the word in the context of the way the Bible uses it in other places. It's not in our passage. It means a mean, worthless person, a villain, a person without honor or virtue. And in our own text, scoundrels are the tax collectors and the sinners. And rightly so. I mean, the tax collectors specifically were often wealthy men. And they collected customs and duties for the Roman Empire. They were wealthy most of the time because they were greedy, and they treated people very wickedly. They skimmed off the top to make themselves wealthy. So society really, really hated them. Sinners were people who flagrantly surveyed the customs and rituals of Judaism, but also just the law of God. They disobeyed God's law, committed acts of sin. So you have prostitutes and adulterers, extortionists, gamblers, drunkards. And these were considered scoundrels. And rightly so. So our text today is going to talk about how Jesus interacts with this group of people. These scoundrels. We're going to see that he does two things. First, he calls them into fellowship with himself. And then he heals them. Of their sin. Let us pray together before we dive in. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us. We are before your throne and we want to hear you. And we pray that you would give us the grace to obey what we hear, to submit to your word. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, a couple of chapters before chapter 9, I think it's Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he spots these four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they're going about their fisherman duties. And he says to them, hey, drop what you're doing. Follow me. And immediately, these men follow him. Now, that's a smart, brilliant move. Jesus is gathering disciples, followers who strong, sturdy, disciplined men with great endurance and who had a respectable profession. He was calling these men to shape them into disciples who would grow his kingdom after he's gone and to spread the message. That's a smart move. In our passage, Matthew chapter 9, verse Matthew 13, I think it's on page 693, and if I'm right, I have a great memory, in the ASV Bible, uh, 693. Follow along, if you will. In that particular passage, at the very beginning verse 9, Jesus is doing exactly the same thing. He says, he's walk, it says that he's walking down the road. He just finished being a, a, a paralyzed man. He's walking down the road. And he sees Matthew sitting at a tax booth. So he knows he's a tax collector. And he looks at him and he says, follow me. That doesn't feel like a very smart move. I mean, this is a scoundrel. We just talked about what what, what kind of people tax collectors were. Wouldn't it harness Jesus' image and push good people away if they saw Jesus hanging around with a tax collector? Why is he calling a sinner to become his disciple? The answer is in the end of the passage, verse 13, where he says, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is actually intentionally calling all sorts of people to himself, including the outcast, and the scoundrel to accomplish his purposes. He's not only calling respectable fishermen. No. The call to follow Jesus extends to all, including scoundrels. Now, once you don't you imagine that you're on Matthew? And you hear Jesus' voice. You see this rabbi walking towards you, this holy man. You know he's a holy man. You've heard about him. You maybe heard this Sermon on the Mount, or perhaps you were there. Um, you heard other people talk about it. Who knows, but you see this man walking towards you. And you know that he knows who you are because you're sitting in your booth as a tax collector. Worse off, you're a Jewish tax collector. You have betrayed your faith and your people because you are collecting money from your people and putting them in the coffers of their oppressors. You have sided with the enemy, the Jews. You are constantly unclean because you are constantly interacting with Gentiles all the time. You don't go to the synagogue because you've been excommunicated. You work on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath because you have to as a tax collector. This is who you are. And so this man's call jars you, intrudes Into this reality of your rejection, of your shame that you've carried for so long because of what you have been doing to your people. And he says, Follow me. (laughs) Jesus says, Follow me to somebody who's classed with murderers and robbers and prostitutes and sinners. Like Adam and Eve in the garden. Matthew had sown fig leaves to cover up his nakedness and his sin. The fig leaf of money and power and comfort and the security of a job. Fig leaves, where he was trying to find satisfaction satisfaction, say, hey, I am not shameful. I have all these good things. But Jesus, just like at the beginning, when God came into the garden and was looking for Adam, where are you? Jesus comes looking for Matthew, and he says, ah, I see you. I see you through the fig leaves, through these things that you have put on your body to cover your nakedness. And you know what? Follow me. (laughs) Turning point. Pivotal turning point, because at this point, he's got to make a decision. Is Matthew going to let go of his fig leaves? And follow Jesus? Or is he going to pretend that this holy God doesn't see him? He's going to hide and remain what he is. Thankfully, he chooses the vulnerability and openness of being Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciple. And he gets up and he follows Jesus, and immediately the clouds of shame begin to dissipate. The burden of guilt begins to lift from his shoulders. All the fig leaves that he had used to cover up his nakedness before the Lord and the world fell away and he received a new identity in Jesus Christ that covered him in honor and glory and righteousness and holiness. Just like the bonds of slavery were broken and the Israelites walked out of oppression into the promised land, Matthew's chains were broken And he was free to follow Jesus into the new exodus saying, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty I am free at last. When you get home today, I want you to locate a scoundrel. I am not referring to your husband or your wife or your kids or your annoying roommate. I'm referring to the scoundrel that you see when you look in the mirror. I want you to look at that scoundrel And declare to them, yes, Jesus Christ sees all your sin, all your nonsense. And he's telling you to follow Him. I want you to confess to the person in the mirror that Jesus loves you, knows you, sees you, cherishes you. Yes, even you. And he wants you. He desires to have you with him. Because, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. I want you to do that when you stand in front of the mirror when you get home. I'm not kidding. (laughs) And if you want to hear the declaration of God over your life, that your sins are forgiven, please meet with a priest. Confession is a deep tradition of of the Anglican Church. Come hear that your sins are forgiven. Come say, here's what I've done. Oh, but God has released me. And you will hear my child. You have been forgiven. And just like Matthew, determined to rise and follow Jesus. Matthew felt the freedom of his shame going away. He didn't need these fig leaves anymore. And he knew that he had to do something more. He had to do something more. He had to honor this man. He had to celebrate Jesus. And the best way to do that, he said, was going to honor to throw a party. He's going to be at the high table, and you know, I'm going to invite all my friends to come to meet this man. Now, I'm not sure whether, whether when he thought about that, he, he, he thought about the fact that all his friends were probably also scoundrels, <laughs> and he was inviting all these friends to meet a holy man. I'm not sure if he thought about that, but you see, Jesus is sitting at the table, and all of a sudden, all these tax collectors and sinners gather around him. Now, one scoundrel is kind of pushing A room full of scoundrels? Jesus could have backed away. I mean, think about this. Dining, fellowshipping at the table. This is the language, this is what this means. At the table with these people would mean that he's identifying with them, perhaps even condoning their behavior and saying, oh, I am just like you. That's not, of course, true, but Jesus says, "Despite what other people are thinking, are going to think about this. I'm going to stay in this place. I'm going to fellowship with these sinners and tax collectors. Now, isn't it wonderful that when God calls us to follow Him, He's not just calling us to follow at a distance, follow behind Him, and simply be on our best behavior? No." He actually wants us to fellowship, to enter into an intimate relationship together with Him. We serve a God who breaks bread with us and promises never to leave or forsake us. So just like Matthew, because we have been called, we should celebrate Jesus. We should honor Him. Our ultimate duty is to put Him on display. He wants us to invite the scoundrels, our friends, to the table where Jesus is. Were but make no mistake, this can be very, very, very uncomfortable. I want you to think about the disciples who were at this feast, this party that, Luke, that Matthew threw for Jesus. They most likely felt uneasy at this feast. They knew the law and the prophets, they knew the Psalms. Were you perhaps thinking of Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of, wicked, of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Maybe they were thinking of Psalm 24, verse 45. I do not sit, <clears throat> I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate, I hate <clears throat> the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. You see, when the Pharisees come and ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? They were probably thinking about these same passages as well. And we cannot look at them and think "Oh, these uptight religious dogmatists. Granted, some of them were uptight religious dogmatists. But they were serious about Scripture. They were very serious about Scripture. If the law and the prophets and the Psalms say that we should shun ungodly people. Why was Jesus fellowshipping with scoundrels? And this brings me to my second point that God incarnate fellowships with scoundrels in order to heal them of their sin. That fellowship should lead to healing. Look at verse 12 and 13. When Jesus heard what the Pharisees said, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The response was simple. Sin is a spiritual sickness, and like all sicknesses, it must be attended to. It must be treated. Jesus is the physician who deals with the sin in people's lives. But because he is God incarnate, The sin of the scoundrels cannot defile Jesus. When the holy God walks among scoundrels, he makes people holy. Just like Moses had to cover his face as he came down from the mountain because of the glory of the Lord. Just like a few chapters earlier, Jesus touched an unclean leper, and the leper was made clean. Any scoundrel who encounters the holy Jesus with an open heart will be made holy. So if you're not in the company of Jesus when you interact with scoundrels as the disciples were, the company of scoundrels will corrupt whatever good character you have. You will become like them. Now, this is the caution behind the prohibition against being with Godly people. But if, like the disciples of Jesus, you stay in fellowship with the Lord, you will not be swayed by the counsel of the wicked you will not be attracted to the life of the sinner or tempted to sit in the seat of scoffers. On the contrary, you will become the vehicle through which the great physician heals the sick. This is what Jesus was doing at the table. This party thrown in his honor was not a come as you are and leave as you came situation, no. I love the Just As I Am song. Sometimes we stay there. I forget there's more. <laughs> there's more after you come out, uh, Just As I Am. At Matthew's table, Jesus was declaring the glad news, just like you saw in Psalm, in, in song, the glad news of deliverance, speaking of the faithfulness of God and his salvation and enjoining, admonishing his listeners to repent. I would not be surprised if Jesus was saying the same things that the Pharisees would say in their sermons. I'm pretty sure the tax collectors and the scoundrels heard the Pharisees saying similar things. The difference was that he was speaking from a place of fellowship, at the table. I suspect that some of the Pharisees often spoke from a pulpit of condemnation rather than the table of fellowship. I suspect that they preached the law of God with anger and disgust in their hearts rather than grace and love. I think that they felt they were better than tax collectors and sinners. No doubt, their imperiousness seeped into their servants and bolstered their hypocrisy. They were unbearably righteous. If that sounds familiar, it may be because far too many Christians in our day, in our context, all over the world, actually, do exactly the same thing. We're very good at condemning the world for its sins to the top of our lungs. We're skillful at vilifying people who have turned away from biblical truth. We're very good at that. We're very good at creating an us versus them dynamic. Those Democrats, those Republicans, those conspiracy theorists, those alarmists, those Homophobes, those gay loving liberals, those immigrants, those Black Lives Matter people, those white people, those black people, those racists, those anti racists, all labels that we use to other people and make them into scoundrels. In Nigeria, those labels exist vocally everywhere, and people say them. Here, because we're, we don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> We present a false sense of, oh, everything is okay. But in our hearts, those labels ring loudly. And we don't attend to them. We can be unbearably righteous. But Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. Okay, let's pause for a moment. Is Jesus saying, oh, Pharisees, you all don't have any problems at all. you got it right. You don't need me. These sinners here, they're the ones that need me. Is that what he's saying? And let's be careful here about that word righteous. The Gospels actually speak of righteous people. Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly father. Mary, the favored one of God. Simeon, called righteous. Anna, prophetess, in the temple, fasting and praying all the time. John the Baptist. There were righteous people in Gospels. Is Jesus saying that he did not come for them? Remember the parable that he told in Luke about the tax collector and the Pharisees? This tax collector comes and says, sorry, this, uh, this uh, uh, Pharisee comes and says, oh God, thank you that I'm not like those people. Ah, I fast twice a week. I give tithes. Not a tax collector, not a murderer, not none of that. Ooh, thank you, Lord, hallelujah. The tax collector says, Not even looking up to heaven. God, have mercy on me. A sinner. And Jesus says that that tax collector went home justified. And in the Greek, went home declared righteous and not the Pharisee. Those who are considered righteous are the ones who recognize their need for God's mercy and plead for it. Jesus doesn't need to come from them because they're in the right place. They're with him already. They're fellowshipping with him already. But the sinners are not. The Pharisees were not people that saw themselves as sinners. And so because Jesus wants to help them He speaks to them. You know, sometimes we think that other people need Jesus more than we do. Isn't that the case? We pay lip service to God, saying, oh, be merciful to me, O God, have mercy, for I am a sinner, but by our actions we display a false sense of superiority that only makes us look atrocious in the eyes of the world. We need Jesus to open our eyes to remind us that we are all scoundrels, yes. The often unspoken truth in churches is that Christians are scoundrels too. We don't like saying It's very true. Jesus knows that, and so he turns to the Pharisees to heal their self-righteousness. Why? Because he's the physician who deals with the sickness of sin. He tells the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's one of those hyper- hyperboles in... The gospel. You know when Jesus said, you need to hate your father and mother if you're going to follow me? He was making a point. Here he's saying, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. What he's saying to the Pharisees and to us is that we need to prioritize the mercy of God over dutiful obedience. We need to remember the immense, gracious sacrifice of his life that opened up the way for all to enter into Kingdom. We need to learn to balance grace and truth, mercy and sacrifice. Don't get me wrong. This is going to look different in different situations. Sometimes it's going to mean aggressive love, the way that Jesus addressed the Pharisees. Sometimes. But what it, what it doesn't mean is that we're letting go of the truth. We are holding, gripping tightly the truth of Scripture. But that grip must be part of an open embrace to all to come to the table.